Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to episode 91 of the Lost in Order podcast. We are watching Chronologically Lost, which is a chronological ordering of every scene in Mobisode from Lost. Today's episode is Chronologically Lost, episode 91, which covers 2007, everyone back on the island, days 6 and 7. My name is Anna, and I'm here with Wendy, who I'm sure has never, ever lied to a samurai. How are you, Wendy? <laughs> um, well... Don't... Don't lie, I'm a samurai. I, are you a samurai? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not even close. Oh, <laughs> I got a story to tell you. <laughs> well, are you a samurai? Uh, yeah. Are you a black belt? <laughs> uh, sure. Oh. Sure. I, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday, right? <laughs> yeah, lots of time to work on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be working on that one. Um, did you pick up on any themes in this episode? A uh, little one, playing games. Mhm. That's time. Uh Miles and Hurry Hurley playing tic-tac-toe at the temple. His side realizing that Dogen was playing games with his life, trying to get him to take the poison pill. There was a piece of foam children's puzzle hanging up in Claire's lair. Uh, Claire thinks that the others are playing keep away with her son, but Jen plays games with Claire about telling her that Kate took Aaron. Then she didn't take Aaron to save Justin's life. Uh, Didn't turn out very well. And we see Miles playing solitaire at the temple while he's waiting to see what's going to happen next. Jack told Hurley that he was playing catch me if you can with his dead father out in the jungle when they got to the island. And in the pockets of the bodies of the cave that Hurley and Jack find again. Uh, they originally held the black and white stones for the game of Senate. And after Jack sees the lighthouse mirrors and his own house in them, that Jacob has been playing games with his life the whole time. He, he thinks and he smashes them to bits. Dogen finds out whether Saeed is uh, game for some fighting after he tells him that his inner scale is tipping too far towards evil. Miles welcomes the return of Kate back to the circus, he says, and lets uh, lets her know that Claire is back at the temple, too. So what game is she playing? Claire. Mm-hmm. Claire is, so I recall her. Uh, Saeed is trying to figure out what game Dogen is playing again on him by sending him out to kill MIB. But he didn't follow Dogen's rules of the game that closely, and now he's playing an MIB's game. Dogen tells Saeed about why he's here after his DWI with his son in the car that he picked up from a baseball game. And Jacob told him that he could bring back his son, but in exchange, Dogen had to be on his team and working for him on the island forever. And lastly, game over for most of the inhabitants of the temple, and Kate now finds herself separated from her team and now is with Claire on MIBs, the first time seeing the supposed 
to be deceased, John Locke. Mm. What I have this week, what about you? I have a theme my friend told me. Oh, okay. Jack and Dogen have a friendly discussion, which they appreciate each other's honesty. Mm-hmm. Dogen questions what Hurley's doing in the hallway of the temple, but Hurley's <laughs> friend, Jacob, appears to tell him that he doesn't have to listen to Dogen. How does Hurley know how to get to the lighthouse? His friend, Jacob, told him. Claire is sure that the others have Aaron because her father told her and her friend told her. Claire finds out that Kate took Aaron off the island. Her friend, Jim, tells her this. Dogen and Saeed share an almost friendly moment when uh, Dogen tells Saeed about his son and the reason that he came to the island. All my friends having conversations. Yeah. What else? What else did you like in this episode? Uh, I like good the lines. huh? A lot of good lines. Any good lines? Yeah. Uh, well, I like the uh, the image where we start off with Jack looking into the water. Mm. Um, everything's an option, but I will try to stop you. Don't get stuck into Jack. Oh, that's good to know. At least you're honest. Um, Hugo. After. Um, Dogen <laughs> starts speaking to him in Japanese and then walks off after he tells him, uh, I don't, you you go then. Uh-uh. <laughs> after he knows he can't, he's like, uh, what did he say? <laughs> and Jacob says, you don't want to know. Um, evil incarnate. That was uh, back in the day. That was one of our favorite things to say on the podcast from Dogen. Um, she just strolled in here acting all weird. Still hot, though. Miles talking about Claire. Yep. <laughs> I love Miles. Um, Ben's reaction when Saeed says, not for me. <laughs> he's, he's sitting there in a pool of blood with bodies. Sitting there and Ben's like, wow, you're creeping me out and I'm Ben. <laughs> and, of course, the creepiest version of Catch a Falling Star ever, perhaps, ever recorded. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and Jack looking out the ocean. At, uh, because that's what he needs to do. Some people need to do that, and some people just are told in the back of cabs. And uh, early miles again. Hungry? Are you? I could eat. <laughs> just, <laughs> just walk off like nothing. Yeah, nothing's going on. We'll go see what's in the refrigerator, kind of thing. <laughs> what about you? Uh, let's see what I have left. Um, oh, the first time that we've seen the outside of the caves is this episode. Yeah. We see them yeah, on the inside right. and stuff. It's the first time we've seen the outside, so it's kind of different. They don't really recognize it very soon, and mm. we're kind of like, oh, so this is what we're seeing. Okay. Because that um, was kind of quick, right? Because the bees were there. So you don't really get a good look at it when they run into the Yeah, you in, definitely in don't. First not season. from the outside. Yeah. 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 Um, I came back here because I was broken, and I was stupid enough to think this place mm-hmm. could fix me. Very moving line from Jack. And uh, did you say the Jack line to Hurley? Does it say anything about on your arm about the door being jammed? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. And then yeah. just Dogen's bargain with Jacob. You move to the island. I'll hear your son. It sounds like Juliet's agreeing, agreement with Ben. You stay on the island. Wow. Your sister's cancer will go away. It was yeah. kind of a, talk about Jack looking in the pool. It's a mirror image of mm-hmm. something that's already happened, but in this case, the power that Jacob has versus the power that Ben has, I and mean, they both seem to have the power to do that, but they're kind of working on different teams now. So <laughs> it's yeah. To think about. And Ben, you know, well, that's what he told her. It's like if you, you know, if you want Jacob, 
to heal her. Yeah, so it's still, at that time, it was kind of still Jacob in a way. That was just mm-hmm. healing. But yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, any wearing of scarves? Uh, again, various others, multiple different color headbands. Or think Cindy had her like kind of the braided headband thing going on. So it was like red and gold or something. You can always count on Cindy. Yes. Great. Well, now that we've uh, talked through some of our initial ideas about this episode, let's turn the frozen donkey wheel, take a look at the episodes that make up this episode of Chronologically Lost. This episode, on the as the frozen donkey wheel turns, we have two episodes, season six, episodes five and six. So starting with episode five, that was Lighthouse. It originally aired on February 23rd, 2010, written by Damon and Carlton, directed by Jack Bender. Um, what Dogen said to Hurley in Japanese, and Hurley asked Jacob, what did he say? And Jacob said, you don't want to know. I got the translation off of Lostpedia. Uh, Dogen apparently said, you're lucky that I have to protect you. Otherwise, I'd have to cut your head off. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. didn't know what we were getting into there, but that's what he said. Mm. Uh, also from Lostpedia, they pointed out that the discovery of Shannon's inhaler is likely meant to serve as payoff to the Comic-Con 2009 Q&A session in which Jorge Garcia approached the microphone, asked what happened to Shannon's inhaler, presuming Sawyer didn't take it, to which Damon and Carlton replied that it was not important enough to answer. And I looked this up tonight and watched that on YouTube. He actually got up and asked um, a different question first. He got up mm-hmm. and said, hey, it's the end of season five, and it's this bright white light. You know, did that reset everything? What does that mean? <laughs> of course, they kind of <laughs> laughed him off and said, trust us, wait and see. Um, and then he brought up the inhalers and said, hey, this happened in season one. Are we going to get some answers to this? So. Way to go, Jorge. Got answers. <laughs> <laughs> we got uh, From TV Guide, they had an article the week this episode aired called Lost. How will Michael and Libby return by Natalie Abrams? There are all kinds of rumors around this time of who's coming back in the final season and and who they're going to, what they're going to be doing on the show. So this is one of many, but uh, some interesting things in here. Among Michael's many acts of deception, the most serious was that he murdered Ana Lucia and Libby in cold blood in season two. Since then, the estranged father has been trying to rectify mistakes, and according to Perrineau, he just may get it despite being dead. In fact, he says, Michael is going to apologize to Libby. I did get to apologize, Perrineau says. Every time I did it, it was really emotional. There was something really nice about it. It's not just apologizing to her, but to Hurley as well. Co-star Garcia shared the same sentiments. It played really well. When we did the rehearsal for it, I found myself getting way more emotional than I thought I was going to. Ana Lucia, who Michael also murdered, won't be getting an apology, though. She was in his way, says Perrineau. She was going to kill Ben. You see how good Michael Emerson is on the show, right? If she'd have killed him, we would have missed all that. You should be faking. <laughs> like he took the line right out of Ben's mouth. You knew. <laughs> if you knew that Michael Emerson was going to be on the show, you'd never stop. Thanking me. (laughs) (laughs) 
The next episode is Sundown, Season 6, Episode 6. It aired on March 2nd, 2010, was written by Paul Zuzuki and Graham Rowland, directed by Bobby Ross. A couple of little interesting tidbits from Laughpedia. Miles is the first regular character who time-traveled to re-encounter other regulars in the present. He runs into Lapidus, Ben, and Son in this episode, who are not on the island when it was moved. So mm. that's very interesting. And yeah. they also pointed out that Miles and Son meet in this episode for the first time in the series. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's interesting so. when you realize who's never been in the same place mm. at the same time. Kind of cool. And then an article from TV Guide from March 1st, 2010. 13 Clues About the End of Lost, Does Alana Age? Who's Coming Back? Who Isn't? By Natalie Abrams. So I picked up just a couple of these. These came from um, Paley Fest Lost panel uh, that same weekend of March 1st. So who should we expect to see again this season and who's not getting a comeback? Ben's childhood friend Annie is a no, the producer said. Matthew Abaddon, Lance Reddick, is dead and not coming back, and neither is Mr. Echo. Here's some consolation. Charlie Pace will return along with Charles Widmore and Vincent the Dog. And then uh, no one would say whether Disney is planning a lost ride, but Lindelof has an idea of what it could be. Quote, just put people in a dark room, spin them around for a minute, have them walk out of the room, punch them in the face, and say, you've just had the lost experience. <laughs> Thank you, Damon Lindelof. <laughs> and then this last part, I thought, very interesting. Did Jacob really have a list? Not necessarily. Quote, the idea that Jacob had a list that he furnished to the others or to Ben is up for debate, Lindelof said. He suggested that Ben Linus might have just invented the idea of the list to get Jack to operate on him. That's very interesting given that Ben brings up the list when he's so mad at Jacob. All of those slips of yeah. paper. I mean, if he invented the idea, he wouldn't be so mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't, well, I guess there are different places with the list, too. So, but, yeah, that one in particular. <laughs> it's like, so mad about the list. Come on, Damon, watch your own show. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, too. <laughs> <laughs> Any um, time discrepancies or timeline issues in this episode? Um, I don't think so. I think it's pretty... Yeah. Back to back, yeah, yeah, straightforward. Pretty straightforward exposition this time. Yeah. All right, then we will move on to our next segment, the VH1 has done. So take a look at pop culture and historical references in this episode. All right, this time on VH1 has been, we're going to start off with tic-tac-toe, like we started in this episode. This info comes from sweettoothdesign.com. The origin of tic-tac-toe it originated from the ancient Roman Empire around the first century, and it was called Tyranny Lapili. The rules of the game differ as each player only has three pieces, moving around the empty spaces to keep playing. First print reference to the game appears in Britain with the name Knots and Crosses in 1864. The name tic-tac-toe is renamed from Knots and Crosses in the 20th century in the USA, and is the earliest known game to display visuals on a video monitor. Although tic-tac-toe appears uh, simplistically to play, it contains 138 terminal board positions and 255,168 possible ways these terminal board positions is obtained. Um, 
Other names besides knots and crosses that came from Britain, X's and O's, and uh, Tyranny Lipari, as we said before, from the Roman Empire. Tic-tac-toe is a two-player game that takes turns make marking spaces on a three-by-three three grid, and the objective of the game is to place three connecting marks in a horizontal, vertical, or diagonal row. Tic-tac-toe is one of the first games to be played by children due to its fast setup and easy engagement. There are tic-tac-toe panels that can easily be found in children's playgrounds or in parks all over the globe. We saw Hurley, as we were talking early before, he made a comment about Jack's, uh, you know, does it say anything else about his door being jammed? So he's writing that, he's trying to remember what Jacob was saying to him. It's a lot of information, he said. So it's kind of like uh, crib notes on his arm. Um, cheat, uh, cheat sheets, uh, or crib sheet, is a concise set of notes used for quick references, and this came from Wiki. Uh, cheat sheets are also named because they may be used by students without the instructor's knowledge to cheat on a test. However, at higher levels of education, where rote memorization is not as important as basic education, students may be permitted to consult their own notes during the exam, which is not considered cheating. The act of pre-preparing a cheat sheet is also an educational exercise. The students are sometimes only allowed to use cheat sheets they have written themselves. In such usage, a cheat sheet is a physical piece of paper, often filled with equations and or facts in compressed writing. Modern students often print cheat sheets in extremely small font, fitting an entire page of notes in the palm of their hands during the exam. The term can also apply to the fully worked solution for exams or worksheets normally handed out to university staff to use marking. In more general usage, a cheat sheet is any short one or two page reference to terms, commands, or symbols where the user is expected to understand the use of such terms, but not necessarily to have memorized all of them. Many computer applications, for example, have cheat sheets included in the documentation, which list keystrokes or menu commands needed to achieve specific tasks to save the user the effort of digging through an entire manual to find the keystroke needed to, for example, move between two windows. An example of such a cheat sheet is one for the GIMP photo editing software. Some academic and technical publishers also publish cheat sheets for software packages and technical topics. In such cases, they are also intended to, as display mm -hmm. items in that they are colorful and visually appealing. And web-based cheat sheets of le legitimate variety, such as a reference to terms, commands, or symbols, have become extremely common. And Hurley's talking about Indiana Jones stuff. So... <laughs> In, in the uh, the temple, as he's looking along the wall at the hieroglyphics, and uh, so looked up some Indiana Jones stuff, and this came from IndianaJones.wiki.com, and this is kind of a biography of short sorts with like movies, TV, novelization type stuff all together. So Dr. Henry Watt. Walton Jones, Jr., was an American archaeologist, most famously known as Indiana Jones or Indy. During World War I, he used the name Henri Defense and went by a number of aliases through his life. He was married at least twice, fathered a son and daughter, and had several grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Throughout his career, Jones found numerous famous mythological artifacts, including the Sankara Stones, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, and the Crystal Skull of Akator which placed him in conflict with different groups across the globe. Born July 1, 1899 in Princeton, New Jersey, Jones's life was indelibly influenced 
when he accompanied his parents, Henry Sr. and Anna Jones, on a world lecture tour from 1908 to 1910. Throughout his travels, Jones encountered many important figures in history who shaped his outlook on life. After return home, his mother became ill and died. Father and son relocated to Utah in 1912, but without Anna, their relationship became increasingly strained. As Henry Sr. withdrew into his studies, Indiana found himself in various locations as his father lectured once again. By 1916, Indiana and his father had moved back to Princeton. While in spring break that year, Indiana quit high school, briefly participated in the Mexican Revolution, and spent the next three years fighting in World War I. Afterwards, he attended the University of Chicago, where he studied under Professor Abner Ravenwood, later transferring to France, where he had earned an undergraduate degree in linguistics. In 1925, he began a brief relationship with Ravenwood's daughter, Marion, which ended his friendship with Abner. Once a graduate, he briefly became an archaeology teacher in London, where he met student Deidre Campbell. Their romance led to marriage in 1926, but a plane crash took Deidre's life. In the years leading up to World War II, Jones secured a teaching position at Marshall College. In 1936, the U.S. government contracted him to find the Ark of the Covenant, which led him to be reunited with Marion Ravenwood. The relationship lasted until Jones left a week before their wedding. During the war, Jones joined the OSS along with his girlfriend, Sophia Hapgood. The Cold War brought the Soviets into competition as a new world order, as a new world power, and Indy found himself the focal point of the quest for Ekator. After Soviet agents kidnapped him, he agreed to help his son, Mutt Williams, rescue his father figure and Indy's colleague, Harold Oxley. Indy and Marion were reunited, and their reconciliation finally led to marriage. Jones's lifetime of adventures eventually took its toll. He sustained a wound to the one eye and was forced to walk with a cane during his 90s. By the early 1990s, he was living in the New York City area and with his daughter and grandchildren. And in his early life, Indiana Jones was born Henry Walton Jr. Jones Jr. to a Scottish-born professor of medieval studies, Henry Jones, and his wife, Anna on July 1st, 1899 in Princeton, New Jersey. He had a sister, Susie, who died at an early age. And while still in the crib, Henry's parents introduced him to an Alaskan Malibu puppy named Indiana. The two quickly bonded, and the dog was a friend and companion throughout the earliest decades of Jones's life. When Henry Jr. had first learned to walk, he demonstrated this ability by somehow finding his way up the roof of the family's house, which forced his father to climb up after him. By 1905, young Henry had adopted the name of his beloved dog for himself. Though his father would continue to refer to him as Junior well into his adult life. <laughs> and at some point in 1905, Indy and his parents visited relatives in New Mexico, and it was there that Indy rode on a pony, the first time he ever rode a horse, a talent he would eventually fully master. And when Indy was seven years old, he first developed a fascination for the bullwhip when he saw a whip act in the traveling circus. And as a boy, Henry Jr. befriended future actor Paul Robeson. Henry was a curious and restless child who often preferred to spend time with Indiana, play baseball with his friends, or conduct experiments instead of staying at school. At one time, he tried to break the land speed record. At another point, he tried to send his dog to the moon. <laughs> Henry was a big fan of professional baseball, and his favorite team were the New York Giants, while Christy Mathewson was his favorite player. He took piano lessons, but he didn't think he was very good at it, so he quit, unlike Daniel, I guess, or maybe like Daniel. Following the success of his books, Professor Jones was invited to a two-year-long world lecture tour of school and universities. 
from 1908 to 1910, Indiana and Anna were to accompany him in his travels around the globe. So Junior wouldn't be losing out on his studies. Professor Jones decided to hire his old Oxford University tutor, Miss Helen Margaret Seymour. As such, their first port of call was to her home in England. Still living in the city of Oxford, Miss Seymour was introduced to the boy, then declined Professor Jones's offer. She believed him too young. Nor did Indiana want to see any more of her, but Henry Sr. was determined for a son to have the best tutor he can get. Seymour eventually relented, and the family began the two-year stretch. It would be nine days of study before Indiana saw his first adventure. Hurley <laughs> uh, brings up about samurai. I almost killed one. Uh, or, buy one. Uh, samurai is, is from Britannica.com. Is a member of the Japanese warrior caste. The term samurai was originally used to denote the aristocratic warrior, or bushi, but it came to apply to all the members of the warrior class that rose to power in the 12th century and dominated the Japanese government until the Meiji Restoration in 1868. Emerging from provincial warrior band, the samurai of the Kamakura period from 1192 to 1333 with their military skills and pride in their stoicism developing a disciplined culture distinct from the earlier quiet refinement of the imperial court. During the Muromachi period, 1338 to 1573, under the growing influence of Zen Buddhism, the samurai culture produced many such uniquely Japanese arts as the tea ceremony and flower arranging that continues today. The ideal samurai was supposed to be stoic warrior who followed an unwritten code of conduct, later formalized as Bushido, which held bravery, honor, and personal loyalty above life itself. Ritual suicide by disembowelment, or seppuku, was institutionalized as a respected alternative to dishonor or defeat. In the early part of the Tokugawa period, 1603 to 1867, the samurai, who accounted for less than 10% of the population, were made a closed caste as part of the larger effort Although still allowed to wear the two-sword emblematic of their social position, most samurai were forced to become civil bureaucrats or take up some trade during the 250 years of peace that prevailed under under the Tokugawa uh, shogunate, or the military dictatorship. Moreover, the rise of the cities of the expansion of merchant economy during the early 18th century Japan led to the flowering of a vibrant urban culture, which eventually superseded the austere lifestyle of the samurai. At the same time, the economic position of the samurai, who lived primarily on fixed stipends, was being eroded. In spite of their high social rank, a growing number of samurai families suffered impoverishment by the end of the Tokugawa period. Lower-ranking samurai, eager for advancement and realizing a new sense of national purpose in the face of encroachment by the Western powers during the mid-19th century, took part in the movement against the Tokugawa regime that resulted in the Meiji Restoration of 1868. Samurai class lost its privileged position when feudalism was officially abolished in 1871. Discontented former samurai rose to rebellion several times during the 1870s, but these revolts were quickly suppressed by the newly established National Army. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi makes mention of Obi-Wan. it comes from StarWarsWikia.com. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a character from the George Lucas series of Star Wars films, first seen in Star Wars um, from 1977, later named Star Wars IV, A New Hope, 
and it's released in theaters in 1981. Obi-Wan Kenobi, later known as Ben Kenobi, took his exile, was a Force-sensitive human male Jedi master who served the Galactic Republic. He was mentor to both Anakin Skywalker and his son Luke, training them in the ways of the Force. Born on the planet Sujan, Kenobi was taking as the Padawan learner of Qui-Gon Jinn. During the invasion of Naboo, Kenobi became the first Jedi in a millennium to defeat a Sith Lord when he defeated Darth Maul during the Battle of Naboo. But in that battle, Maul mortally wounded Jinn. At Jinn's behest, Kenobi took Anakin Skywalker to be his own Padawan, training him during the decade leading up to the Clone Wars. And during the Clone Wars, Skywalker was made a Jedi Knight, and Kenobi and Skywalker fought alongside each other as generals many times. In the last days of the Clone Wars, Skywalker turned to the dark side, betraying the Jedi. Skywalker's new Sith Master, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine, ordered, uh, used Order 66 to destroy the Jedi Order. Though uh, Kenobi survived and reunited with survivors, Yoda, Kenobi, confronted Skywalker, who had not taken the name Darth Vader on Mustafar, and the two dueled. Kenobi emerged the victor, gravely wounding Vader and remorsefully leaving him for dead. However, as Palpatine established the Galactic Empire in place of the Galactic Republic, Vader was rehabilitated, though he was forced to rely on a cybernetic suit for life support. Kenobi went to exile on Tatooine, where he would watch over Vader's newborn son, Luke Skywalker, who he took to live with his aunt and uncle Beru and Owen Lars. Nineteen years later, Kenobi received a message via via R2-D2 from Leia Organa asking for help in the Rebel Alliance fight against the Empire. The droid contained the plans of the Death Star, a battle station created by the Empire capable of destroying planets, and the plans needed to be taken to Bail Organa on Alderaan. And after Luke went to uh, Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle, um, were killed by Imperial forces. For searching for the plan, Skywalker agreed to join Kenobi on the mission and be trained as a Jedi. The pair were taken to Alderaan by Han Solo, only for them to discover that the plan had been destroyed by the Death Star. Their ship, the Millennium Falcon, was captured by the Death Star's tractor beam, and Kenobi was confronted by Death Vader. Vader and Kenobi dueled again, and Kenobi allowed Vader to kill him, so Luke and his companions could escape the Death Star. And in the following years, as Luke continued fighting for the Rebel Alliance, Kenobi continued to give him guidance as a Force spirit, including directing Luke to the planet Dagobah, where Luke received training from his own master, Yoda. Squirrel Baby, and we've we talked about uh, before another episode about um, Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film, Psycho. So Squirrel Baby reveal is kind of a reference to that movie in um, <clears throat> a reveal. And Jason getting axe in the stomach is also from uh, another movie that we talked about earlier in another episode, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining. So that's another couple movie references in there. Uh, Shannon's asthma inhalers. The first inhaler, this info came from useinhalers.com. The invention of the inhaler, the inhaler, the inhaler was invented by an acclaimed English physician by the name of John Mudge. Dr. Mudge developed this incredible device in 1778 in association with lung complaints from patients. However, it was simply not a method of treatment for asthma until the 1900s. Prior to the 20th century, there were seemingly no ties between asthma and the remarkable device. 
some of the first inhalers, which were employed based on a pewter tankard that Mr. Mudge would use for the inhalation of opium vapors for effective cough treatment. Over the coming years, leading in the 1800s, ceramic pots were the next devices to be utilized as inhalers by Dr. Nelson. Dr. Nelson began this trend for the inhalation of plant or chemical substances to alleviate difficulties in breathing. And by the 1860s, Dr. Siegel had developed a steam spray inhaler. This treatment consisted of the effective atomization of liquid medication, which began uh, nebulizer therapy. Nebulizers are a common device used by asthmatics, those with COPD and those with emphysema today to treat symptoms of severe lung inflammation ailments. Nebulizers are successful methods of treatment when a patient simply cannot inhale as fast and as deep as would normally be required with the use of a pressurized inhaler. The lighthouse that we see is based on the lighthouse of Alexandria. And um, this info came from softschool.com. Here's some Lighthouse of Alexandria facts. The Lighthouse of Alexandria was the first lighthouse in the world. Construction began in 290 BC and took 20 years to complete. When it was done, it was the tallest building in the world at the time, except for the Great Pyramid. It was built on the island of Pharos to help guide trade ships into its busy harbor at Alexandria, Egypt. The lighthouse was damaged by several earthquakes and eventually became an abandoned ruin. In 1994, some of the remains of the lighthouse were discovered by French archaeologists in Alexandria's eastern harbor. Interesting lighthouse of Alexandria facts. The lighthouse of Alexandria is also known as the Pharos of Alexandria. The city Alexandria was named by Alexander the Great. It was one of 17 cities that he'd named after himself, but Alexandria was one of the few to survive. It is still a prosperous city today. Alexander the Great died in 323 BC. The lighthouse at Alexandria was built between 290 BC, many years after Alexander the Great's death. Uh, Ptolemy Soter was the ruler of Egypt who decided to build a lighthouse to guide sailors into the port. In today's money, it would have cost about $3 million to build. In 290 BC, it cost 800 talents, the form of money at its time. It's thought to have been constructed of limestone blocks. The lowest level of the lighthouse was 100 feet square and 240 feet high. The second level had eight sides and was about 115 feet tall. The third level was a 60-foot high cylinder that had an opening at the top to allow space where the fire burned to light the way for sailors at night. On top of this was a statue in honor of Poseidon, the god of the sea. The lighthouse at Alexandria was approximately 450 feet tall. Inside the lighthouse, there were stairs that allowed people to climb to the beacon chamber. It was reported there was a large mirror inside, possibly made of polished bronze. The purpose of the mirror was to project a beam of light from the reflection of the fire. It was damaged by three earthquakes. And after the last earthquake, it was abandoned and fell into ruins. This allowed sailors to see the beam at night. The smoke from the fire was important during the day as it guided sailors during the day. Both the beam of light and the smoke could be seen as far as 100 miles away. The Great Pyramid of Giza is the longest surviving of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The second is the mausoleum at uh, Halicarsinus, and the lighthouse of Alexandria was the third longest to survive. In 1480, the last of the lighthouse remaining stone was used to build the citadel of Quad Bay by the Sultan 
Egypt Clape. The citadel was built on the same island where the lighthouse once stood. Julius Caesar mentions the lighthouse of Alexandria in his writings. And today, the city of Alexandria uses the symbol of the lighthouse on the flag of the Alexandria government as well as on their seal. It also appears on the seal of the Alexandria University. Um, Hurley talks about seven years of bad luck from Jack breaking the mirrors. So the, this comes from trivia-library.com. The origin of common superstitions, breaking a mirror. About the origin of the superstition, that breaking a mirror will bring seven years bad luck retali- uh, relation to ancient history. This will bring you seven years of bad luck or might cause the death of someone in your family if you break a mirror. If a mirror is broken, remove it from the house and, if possible, burying it in the ground to con- counteract the evil consequences. That's according to the superstition. Um, the origin of the superstition. Before the invention of mirrors, man gazed at his reflection, his other self, in pools, ponds, and lakes, which is the beginning of the episode. Um, the <laughs> image was distorted. It was a mark of impending disaster. And that water wasn't still when he was looking at it. That's interesting. Um, the unbreakable metal mirrors of the early Egyptians and Greeks were valued items because of their magical properties. After glass mirrors were introduced, it was the Romans who tagged the broken mirror a sign of bad luck. The length of the prescribed misfortune, seven years, came from the Romans' belief that man's body was physically rejuvenated every seven years, and he became, in effect, a new man. And we see solitaire. Miles is playing solitaire. This comes from solitairecentral.com. The history of solitaire. Victorian women playing solitaire. Um, in the picture there, the origins of solitaire are unknown. Some have speculated that the fanciful layouts of solitaire originated with the layouts of tarot cards long used for divination and fortune-telling. The first printed reference appeared in the late 1700s in Northern Europe, and the game arrived in France in the early 1800s. Napoleon Bonaparte was reported to have spent time playing the game during his exile at St. Helena in 1816, and solitaire, or patience, as it is known in Europe, became a popular pastime among the French population soon afterward. Many of the terms used in solitaire, in other words, tableau, and indeed many names of solitaire, uh, Rouge de Noir, La Belle Luce, Coquette, etc., are of French origin, and many of the early books on the subject are from France. The earliest English publication included Lady Cadogan's Illustrated Games of Patience in 1874, William Dick's Games of Patience in 1883, and Professor Hoffman's Illustrated Book of Patience Games in 1892. In America, Lady Cadogan's Illustrated Games of Solitaire or Patience appeared in 1914. And among more recent publications, the Complete Book of Solitaire and Patience Games by Albert Moorhead and Jeffrey Mott Smith, first published in 1949 and still in print to this day, and David Parlett's Penguin Book of Patience are the most popular and authoritative references to solitaire games. And today, solitaire remains a beloved pastime for many people. It, its requirements, a deck of cards, a flat surface, and a few rules, are simple enough that nearly anyone can play. Solitaire is a simple pleasure, harpens back to the time when the world was less complicated and hurried. Solitaire, whether playing the old-fashioned way by hand or on the latest computer, is a great stress reliever and mind exercise more popular now than ever before. And lastly, Dogen's baseball. So the 
origin of the baseball itself. This is some info. came from an article from 19cbaseball.com. Uh, it was written by Eric Miklish. Early baseballs were made simply by surrounding a core, which could be any solid substance, with hand-wound yarn or string. Oftentimes, the baseball would also contain some form of stuffing. The cover was a one-piece cover, usually some form of brown leather, which was stitched in a fashion known as lemon peel or rose petal. The four sides of the single piece of leather were sewn to close the baseball's core, and the stitching formed an X configuration. These early baseballs were extremely light and soft, and prior to 1845, runners were allowed to be soaked or hit with a thrown ball as a way to be put out. <laughs> with all baseballs being handmade by players and local merchants, there was no standard size or weight. From 1845 to 1853, unofficially, most balls were quite small as compared to today's modern and were considerably lighter. The covers were now all made of leather, and the shade varied from medium brown to dark brown. During an 1854 baseball meeting of three New York teams, the Knickerbockers, Gotham, and Eagles Club, a, science, a specific weight and circumference was decided upon. The ball was to be between five and one-half to six ounces in weight and be between two and three-quarter and three and one-half inches in diameter. The specifications agreed upon were certainly not standard for the country, and most likely were the dimensions from the balls that they were familiar with. These balls still consisted of a single piece of dark brown leather for the covered zone in the lemon peel fashion. During the first baseball convention in 1857, which was held in New York's uh, Smith Hotel and attended by 15 New York clubs, the diameter of the baseball was voted on to be between 10 and 10 and one quarter inches in circumference and weigh between six and six and one quarter ounces. In 1858, H.P. Harwood and Sons of Nantic, Massachusetts, became the first factory to produce baseballs. They also were the first in the production of the two-piece figure-eight stitch cover baseball, the same that is used today. The figure-eight stitching was devised by Colonel William A. Cutler, and a new wound core was developed by John W. Walcott. Horsehide and then cowhide were used for the cover. And it's been written that Ellis Drake was the inventor of the two-piece figure-eight stitch baseball cover. Drake was born in 1839 in Stoughton, Massachusetts, and was the son of a shoemaker. He is said to have sketched the design for the two-piece cover in school in the 1840s and made a prototype from his father's scrap leather. He stated that the lemon peel balls used at school were round ball, was playing, came apart on the four corners, and caused the ball not to be true when thrown. And according to Drake, two years after he made the ball, Henry and Harry and George Wright began making baseball covers like Drake's and selling them. Nellis Drake died on December 18, 1912, never patenting his idea. And that's what I have this week for VH1 Aspen. Cool. Lots of great info. Lots of fun references this time. Yeah, a lot of references. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've taken a look at these uh, VH1 has been. We're going to take a stroll through the jungle of mystery and talk about unanswered questions that we have. All right, jungle of mystery time. Wendy, do you have any questions this time? I do, and it's going to go back to the inhalers. <laughs> okay. So, was an empty inhaler, aspen inhaler, 
at the opening of the cave. Was that because it stopped working? And Shannon couldn't breathe. So that's what we saw. It got ditched there. It was an empty one when they brought her into the cave. Or was this the writers forgetting they explained where the inhalers came from in Expose in Season 3? Oh, they did explain that, didn't they? <laughs> yes, they did. Oh, you're too sharp for the writers. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've looked for mm-hmm. those stupid inhalers before. I was like, oh, there it is. They finally answered that. Yeah, I mean, maybe she had maybe she had a couple with her because they always refer to it plural inhalers, right? Mm-hmm. Or do Apollo they? found a bag of them when he was looking for his nicotine gum. He found mm. her inhalers that were missing that Boone was looking for. But that one that might have just been an empty one that when they were bringing her in there she might have dropped and it didn't work anymore. Boone dropped it, so that can still be there, but that didn't. They're making it sound like we were talking about that. I remember that in Comic Con when he, when um, Jorge Garcia, they, you know, they put that in there as, as a joke, mm-hmm. but it was supposed to cover that. But like, you guys already explained it. <laughs> so, like, why are they so thanks for more non answers <laughs> <laughs> or over answering? <laughs> yeah. That whole scene was kind of funny to me. I mean, they, they obviously felt like they had to explain the inhalers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like there could have been a couple of them, but the whole like let's stop by the caves and oh we're at the caves and oh let's reminisce. Like I don't know if it was just the chronological loss, the way that it all fit together, but it was kind of weird. I mean they're trekking along and usually it's like you either go to the place you're going or you get waylaid by the others or you know something happens. But this is like we're just gonna stop by in here and feel nostalgic and yeah. reminisce. <laughs> it's like. This is a really weird trek to the lighthouse. <laughs> and I remember on those uh, enhanced episodes, mm-hmm. that was one of those, like, this is a reference to back to season one when Jack and Katie found bodies and the black and white stuff, you know. So, like, yeah, we've uh, been right. watching For people who are show. just watching it now, you know. <laughs> Catch up speed there. <laughs> yeah. So also maybe related to Shannon. Saeed says, the only thing I ever loved died in my arms. Did he mean Shannon or did he mean Nadia? Or Elsa. Or love itself. I have the same question. (laughs) They all did. (laughs) Everything I ever loved died in my arms. (laughs) I love that chicken, too. I love that chicken. (laughs) The idea of loving someone maybe died for Saeed. (laughs) Yeah. After what he went through. Mm. Now I'm trying to remember, though. Did Elsa die in his arm? Did he go over to her? Because he shot her, and then she kind of like... I mean, she was pretty well dead by the time he crawled over there. But, you know, yeah. if that's what he means, I'm not going to hold it against him. Like, oh, no, Saeed, yeah. you missed it by five you seconds. Missed it. <laughs> you can't say she died in your arms. That's Sorry. Right. Technically, she did not. <laughs> I figured throw everybody in there because they all pretty much died in his arms. So, yeah, everyone. Wow. Anybody else? <laughs> I remember the like chicken. The chicken died in his arms, right? When he broke his <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. I'm gonna say 
and they could go even more philosophical, which left it more open to who would show up in the church would be uh, just the the concept of side loving someone and loving him back. That just never happened for him. That's the thing yeah. he wanted most is to, to spend his life with someone that he loved. Who that is could be in question. I mean, do, do you think it was Shannon? I, I mean, it seems to be from the church, like you said, mm-hmm. from who appeared there. Um, I mean, she did die in his arms more literally than anyone else did. Yeah. I mean, Nadia was kind of there on the street. He was there, but he was, like, carrying Shannon, you know? hmm And, yeah, I guess he must have been talking about her. Uh, yeah, I'm going to mostly say it was Shannon, but, yeah. But just the concept of it ha- happens to him a lot. So, poor Saeed. Yeah, yeah. Lucky it was. Well, he's a zombie now, so yeah, probably may not care as much. <laughs> uh, you have another question? Uh, why wasn't Hurley able to see what Jack saw in the lighthouse mirrors at first? Eventually he did, but he, he's like, what? He didn't see it when he when Jack was looking at the church, which was Sawyer's church, I'm guessing, um, that he gave him the pen. Hurley's looking and is like, what? I don't see anything, but it was clearly there, and Jack was looking at. So why didn't Hurley see it at first? Hmm. Um. Maybe the angle was off. You have to be looking in from the right. Maybe. Angle, depending on that, possibly. Um. Yeah, because they're both at this point they're equally candidates. So. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Anything that kind of one can do, the other seems to be able to do at this point. So I wouldn't say that it's like anything special about Jack. Um, he just happened to be standing and looking at the, the correct angle in order to see what's showing up in the mirror. That or because he wanted to see it at first. I mean, he's there because he's like, Jacob's going to be here and I'm going to meet Jacob and I'm going to give him peace of my mind. So. Oh, that's a good point that you just brought up because isn't that what Hurley said? to him when they show up and Jack's like how have we not seen this before about the lighthouse oh right right because we weren't looking for it so maybe Mm -hmm. that's exactly what it was Jack was looking for it Hurley wasn't quite yet and then he saw it afterwards when he kept insisting no go to this you know go to 23 so it's more focused Mm -hmm. yeah um so Lennon interestingly said that Dogen was the only thing keeping Smokey out of the temple. Like he didn't really chalk it up to lines of ash or anything else. So, how does that work? That it's somehow Dogen himself that's keeping Smokey out? Yeah, the same, same question too. Um, hmm. Well, he wasn't supposed to. He wasn't supposed to leave. Was that the condition that he pretty much was just going to stay there forever, kind of like Richard? Yeah, but if you're if you're a guy that's protecting the island, mm-hmm. what would you not make him immortal? <laughs> or right. maybe they they can't. Maybe they can't do it to the extent they'd want to. Um, but why wouldn't you? You know, put Richard in charge, or I mean, just having it, having that much 
rely on a single human being who's very fragile, really. Mm. I mean, the whole island itself is kind of a safeguard against anything happening. It's hard to get to the island. And once you're on the island, it's hard to get around the island. And once you're getting around the island, it's hard to find the temple. But clearly it's been done by a few people over the years. And uh, (laughs) I mean, a lot knew her way around. She got in there and... Yeah, and that's another question too about about Dogen. He met Jacob in the same circumstances that we see Alana um, and Jacob. He he met Dogen at the hospital after the accident. So it's just a common thing. You know, he met John Locke after an accident. He met mm. you know, not everyone, but. Um, yeah, somehow he's picked out these vulnerable people and knows mm-hmm. exactly what to promise them to get them right. to do what he wants. Yeah, it's well, that's, that's interesting. Like the, I mean, if you pick out everybody's vulnerability, Kate's vulnerable because she's breaking the law. <laughs> uh, Jen and Son are kind of vulnerable. They're starting their new life together, so it's a kind of a place to be. Jack's performing his first surgery, right? Or is this a, just a that this is the first time he really is kind of out in depth. He's not used to, and he makes a pretty big error, and his father has to kind of calm him down. So, and then of course Sawyer losing his parents. Mm. Yeah, so they're all kind of in this vulnerable position. Saeed losing Nadia, but Hurley, Hurley wasn't. He came to Hurley. Yeah. In the cab. <laughs> he was probably the only one who wasn't vulnerable necessarily, other than all I have to do is talk to you in a cab. I didn't have to go to these any because he believed him right off. So, you know. Um, but yeah, what was the difference between uh, Dogen and some of these other people? Is he like Richard? Richard's not a candidate. Hmm. You know, yeah, why? Immortality. Was what's was Saeed only able to do what he does because he's sort of immortal in a weird way? <laughs> I don't know. That he was able to, to kill Dogen? Hmm. And then that made things wrong. And then Claire being in there too, why they let her in there. They just threw her out because she was infected. She got sick, yeah. Hmm. And is the sickness the same infection as Danielle's team? <laughs> mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it is. Oh wait. Did they say that was does he say that it's different, though? I'm McClare. You think Claire died and, and was revived as well? well no wonder she went pressure, through the same right? thing. Yeah. If she blew up in that house and she was, because she had seen things, she was talking about that. And yeah, but she never went. Question. Never went to the pool. Never went to the temple. Mm-hmm. Turned the cap. So unless. Unless Christian has the power to do that, 
or those lovely jars sitting on the windowsill in the cabin. Yeah. We're like, hey, it's some festering temple water. Drink this and you'll come back to life. <laughs> that, might be, that might be the explanation right there. We've been waiting for years. It's just the infected temple water. <laughs> it kind of looked like it. It's not the same color. Um, let's see. Since Jack broke the mirrors, is there no other way to find potential candidates from the island other than the ones he already knew, like Walt, like Hurley later on, or anyone else? Mm. Or does that change with the rules that they make? I guess I always picture Jacob kind of like Ben having a network of people out there who could report mm-hmm. on things. Um, and we may have touched on this last time. We don't know if the lighthouse shows exactly what's happening now or if it shows if you could look back in time with it mm-hmm. and and have that much control to see, which would be so much more useful than just having a network of spies out in the real world. Um, people like, you know, Alana, who could be out there gathering information for you. So... I think if Jacob still had work to do related to the lighthouse, that would be a big blow to him. Um, not fatal, but it would hurt. But he's dead, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, more than anything, I think it just punctuates the fact that his time is over. He's gone, his tools are gone or are being destroyed, mm-hmm. his people are being destroyed as the temple is destroyed. It's the end of an era and everything is falling apart. But he can still show up as himself. Or <laughs> Right, but he's like slowly going to be fading out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other ones? I don't have any more questions. Do you? Okay. Uh, yeah, I got a few. Um, does MIB talking to Saeed really make the sword useless or does him speaking to Saeed make him useless for good? For for Hmm. the good side. Because Saeed did not listen to what Dogen said. He let him speak and then he stabbed him. Didn't Richard and MIB have a similar similar situation once where he was told don't let him talk to you? Yep. Mm. Yeah, it, it's like, it sounds like there's something almost magical about his his words when he starts talking to you. You can't do what you meant to do. Or, I don't know, it's weird, because even when you do what you meant to do, stab him in the chest, um, it's not effective. So, it's like his words are, are a barrier somehow to protect him. I'm not sure how it works. Mm. Yeah, I just because we'll never really know if that actually would have worked or not. Mm-hmm. And if Saeed wasn't, I know he was kind of just throwing it out there because he didn't have any other choice. Would it have worked if Saeed tried to do it as opposed to somebody who wasn't infected? Mm. Yeah, I- I don't know if Dogen needed him because he was infected or if he just thought, well, he's disposable now. Mm. Or if he's more amenable to coercion now that he's infected. Yeah. But he's like, oh, 
just hoping you have some good left in your soul. Go do this thing. Yeah. Didn't quite work out exactly as he was hoping. Um, now, um, I think that's a, something that was one line that was sounding like Dogen was a candidate, but then Saeed was able to kill him, so he wasn't really a candidate. Hmm. Do you think he was ever a candidate, Dogen? And there's 360 names on the wheel. Yeah. Um. He could have been. He could have been. But then how you'd figure out that you weren't a candidate, I don't know. Mm. I thought part of that, yeah, yeah, like candidates, because that was the whole thing. It's like you can't kill somebody on purpose or you can't kill yourself, but they can do it like, they can kill each other but not really knowing. It's almost accidental, like the whole thing on the submarine. They had to kind of trick them into doing it. I guess it would count as a trick. If I might be got Saeed to kill Dogen. Um, it wasn't mm-hmm. like Saeed going, I'm just going to kill this guy. I might be talked him into it and kind of tricked him. So if Dogen was a candidate. Now he's out of the picture. Yeah. Hmm. Food for thought. That's what I've got this week. Okay. Good questions this week. Well, uh, we'll go now to our next segment, which is Never Let It Fade Away, and we'll take a look at something from outside of Lost that enhanced our experience of the show. Right, never fade it. Well, never let it fade away. This week, um, I think it was fitting with this episode. I, I forgot all about this video and popped into mind after watching this. Um, the original is not out there anymore. I can't find it, but there was another one that was made similar to it, and it is um, when the man comes around. Am I be centered? video director's cut this was by Jerzamail Ampereers uploaded on YouTube on March 1st 2010 and uh, it's to the song When the Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash and here's some song facts from uh, the song about the song the title track from Johnny Cash's 2002 album American 4 The Man Comes Around this was penned by Cash a few years before the recording of the album the idea for the song came from a dream of Cash's where he was in Buckingham Palace and the Queen said to him, Johnny Cash, you're just like a thorn tree in the whirlwind. Cash decided that the dream was biblical and found the reference in the book of Job, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkness counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand to thee and answer thou me. There are a number of biblical references in the lyrics spoken word intro that opens both the song and the album is taken from Revelation 6 
verses 1 and 2, which describes John the Apostle's vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, each heralded by one of the four beasts first mentioned in Revelation 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. Uh, when then hear several other Revelation references, cachings of how the man or God will one day come to pass judgment. There was an original video made that was focused mainly on what we saw at the temple, but that one is gone somewhere I don't know. <laughs> but this one starts uh, off with the journey from beginning with the scene of Jacob and MIB on the beach and some of where Smoke Monster has been and who he's affected. And some of the lyrics, the hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the powder's ground when the man comes around? And that's the scene where MIB is trying to recruit Sawyer in Darmerville. And there's several scenes, whether it's like the birth of Aaron and the death of Boone or Echo's judgment, um, Ben's judgment. It's a lot of uh, great scenes that's cut into the song talking about you know, the coming ju- judgment coming down this time from that might be here. So it's a very well edited video, and I thought it was a good selection for this week's Never Let It Fade Away. Awesome. I feel like I've seen that, but now I'm really looking forward to watching it. <laughs> yeah, it's not the original because the original is like all focused on what happened in Sundown. But hmm. um, yeah, this one's kind of up until that point. So it, you don't really see the, the temple, it's, it's everything to when MIB and Jacob are on the beach to like right before that. Okay. Okay. That's great. All right. Well, now that you all have heard from us, we want to hear from you. We're going to check out the coconut internet. All right. This week on the coconut internet, we just have a tweet from Adam from NZ. That's at A-D-Z underscore NZ on November 10th. Us at Lost in Order. The island won't let Saeed kill himself a la Michael, so he had to believe in Jack that it was a good pill hmm, from last week. Yes. Huh. That's right. So, again, it's that tricking. If they believe it and they don't know that that's happening to them, then I guess that that's how it works. But if they're aware of it, like Michael trying to do that, uh, trying to kill himself, then it doesn't work. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, thank you, Adam, for that tweet and uh, some insight into that. Um, if anyone else wants to get a hold of us, Anna, what can they do? Well, they can find us online in a couple different ways. You can find us on Twitter at Lost in Order. You can visit our blog, lostinorderpodcast.wordpress.com. You can send us an email, lostinorderpodcast at gmail.com, or you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail, 334-316-LOST. You can also email us a voice memo if it's easier to just record a voice memo on your phone. Uh, This is probably a good time to remind everyone about the contest that we just started in our last episode. So we're doing 
a contest in anticipation of our 100th episode coming up in just nine more episodes. Uh, we want to hear you do an impression of a line or a short scene from Lost. Um, I think Wendy did a really great impression of Sean Connery earlier in this episode. <laughs> There's some inspiration for you. <laughs> Uh, any any line from Lost, any characters you want to do, give us your best impression, and we'll be working on our impressions too. Um, and then we'll we'll do a drawing at the end. And uh, I think we have a few different prizes to hand out to a few different winners uh, in mind. So, um, yeah, that's our new contest. So get those in before episode 100 drops, and we'll get you entered in our new contest. No more bobbleheads. We are out of bobbleheads, but we have other other cool things in the works. And uh, do that by by email, too, right? They can attach stuff. Absolutely. Like a yeah. MP3 or something. Very cool. Yeah, so everybody want to hear what you've got to say as some of your favorite characters or not so favorite characters. It doesn't matter as long as you like doing the voices. <laughs> And we like hearing them. It's, a lot of fun. it's it's almost like an impulse. You can't help some of these voices. So uh, it's meal time now and forever. forever. Yes, it is. So yes, we want to hear your your Neil or your Charles Widmore or your Carmen. Vincent. Reyes, Vincent. I mean, if you want to do your best, Vincent. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but it's it's got to be like. We gotta know what scene it is with Vincent. We gotta, we gotta <laughs> feel the inspiration there. Can't just uh, do just yes, a random yes. Vincent, you know. <laughs> Give us some context. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Six seasons here, you know. It's a lot of Vincent. Mm-hmm. All right. So send us your impressions, Wendy. Any final closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, we want to thank everybody out there for listening and downloading and subscribing and retweeting and tweeting and commenting and following and forwarding and any kind of feedback that you guys give us. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, any iTunes reviews, either on our Lost in Order site or Lost Podcasting Network, which Anna talked about last episode on Never Let It Fade Away. Um, we want to thank Station 7, The Door Podcast, for letting us sponsor the Amazing Lost Scarf on there, so uh, please go check them out. Station 7, The Door. Right now they're talking Walking Dead and a little lost over there, too. Um, also to Matt for adding us to the Rewatching Good TV Network uh, series of podcasts over there. And um, we want to thank Adam and Clint over on the Getting Lost podcast for promoting Lost in Order over there, and please check them out. Uh, Adam is a longtime fan. He's watched the show several times, and Clint has never seen it before. So uh, they have a very interesting perspective. They're in Season 3 right now, so go check them out on Getting Lost on iTunes and Stitcher. And we want to thank Mr. Axel Foley for our intro and outro of the podcast, and Michael Maloney for taking the time putting this chrono together. Only a few more episodes of it for us to enjoy together. And uh, first, want to thank Anna, as always, for doing the podcast with me. And uh, going on 100 episodes together. Well, even Ooh. more by the end of it. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be 101 plus interviews and other fun things. So um, just being a, a an excellent co-host and an excellent friend and so much she does for the show, everybody. So you can get it on the 
for you to listen to. I wouldn't know what I was doing. <laughs> if I ever needed to take her child off a dangerous island after she left them there on the leaf, then I travel back in time to reunite them. She wouldn't vow to destroy me because that's the kind of person I am. Aww. You better take my axe right? away. Better take my axe away. <laughs> oh, oh no, I, I wouldn't. I would not do that. <laughs> I might give you a hairbrush, but I wouldn't yeah. touch your axe. Hairbrush, peanut butter. Please Man, bring me these things. <laughs> a lot of spray-on conditioner. Something got to get through. I don't know what's going to get through that. Oof. You're my friend, aren't you, Jean? <laughs> yeah. Jean's like yes, yes, I Absolutely, am. <laughs> I'm your friend. Best friends. Yeah. Best friends. All right. <laughs> Well, for next time, we're looking at episode 92, 2007 on the island, days 7 to 8. Good stuff coming up. Um, and as we sign off from another episode of Lost in Order, leave you with a question. Wait a sec. What if we time traveled again to, like, dinosaur time? I like that he says dinosaur time. <laughs> dinosaur time. Spondy time. Dinosaur time. Fonzie on the dinosaur times. (laughs) With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.